Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 711 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 2nd of September 2023 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking about producing visual high quality books and thinking differently with Holger Niels Pohl. We talk about neurodiversity and how it's impacted Holger's life, as well as how he's channeling those feelings into a children's book to help others how we all mask behaviour in some ways, which I certainly realised as we were talking, as well as the challenges of making his incredibly high production value book, Creating Clarity, as well as six specific lessons for running a successful Kickstarter campaign, because crowdfunding is so important if you want to make really high quality books in terms of a premium physical product, which is what I want to do as I talk about in the interview. I want to make beautiful books that that's kind of going to be my focus for the, for the next 15 years. <laughs> I've been doing this almost 15 years and uh, I do have plans for a sort of big post in December on my 15th anniversary. But uh, this is, you know, starting to talk about it. I really want to focus on making beautiful products as well as obviously I focus on the words. But uh, as indie authors, I think we we can now do incredibly beautiful products. So I was really pleased to talk to Holger because he's a designer. Uh, I was in his campaign. I really love his book and we talk all about it. Uh, Plus he also, the book is called Creating Clarity. And so he also gives some tips on cutting through the noise of the online environment and the author world and gaining clarity or creating clarity for your writing and your author business. So we've been online friends for years. So we have a really open, honest conversation that I think you'll enjoy and find useful. So that's coming up in the interview section. Okay, in publishing things, we're talking about copyright today, which is a super important topic that many people talk about and haven't actually read about properly, as in understood what it really means. And the Alliance of Independent Authors has a great article, Indie Authors Need to Talk About Copyright. Uh, There are two different perspectives in the article, Orna Ross and uh, Dan Holloway. Uh, Some of Orna's comments... The indie indie author's ability to make a living from writing books rests on the concept and laws of copyright. Indie authors can get very heated when they feel that right is being violated by another person or a machine. Is copyright broken in the digital age? Should we ditch it and start again? Orna Ross says, Authors are not simply creators in need of recompense and protection. We're also readers, researchers, scholars and citizens seeking education, imaginative stimulation and inspiration. Digital publishing has moved us from a scarcity model around books to an abundance model. Generative AI moves us into a world where words are easily produced, more easily produced than ever before. The biggest danger to authors today is not copying, but obscurity. You can write a great book, but in the midst of all the other great work out there, how is your reader going to find you? 
A healthy, supportive and functioning global copyright environment balances the benefits of ownership with the flexibility we need to run a successful and sustainable business. And uh, Orna points to the Alliance of Independent Authors Handbook on the Copyright Bill of Rights, Eight Rights That Underwrite Author Income. Dan Holloway uh, takes this, I think, further. I don't think they're opposite. I think Dan takes it further. He says, copyright is a white hot button right now. For sure it is. Creatives are seeking to protect their copyrighted material from the all-scraping eye of machine learning. He says, I'm a firm believer in open access in the very widest sense, making the whole sum of human knowledge available to everyone with an internet connection. I take this position because I believe creativity matters, not because I believe it doesn't. I believe it matters so much that the freedom to be creative cannot be allowed to rely on something so fragile as the protection afforded by copyright. It's a really interesting article. It's a sort of um, kind of partly debate. But for many of this stuff, this is so nuanced that we all need to be thinking about it. Uh, They talk about AI, libraries, open access and more. I'll also mention once again an article written by Monica Lionel that I mentioned uh, a while back called Creative Fields Are About to Enter a Post-Copyright Era. And I think this article is really good. And Monica is super smart and really puts things down very well. Uh, This article goes into plagiarism and whether it relates to AI and how to make a living in an author in what what may be a post-copyright era, where authenticity and human touch is the product. Getting things completed and available in many formats and in front of people is how you make money and why you need to build a community that cares about you, treasures your work and is willing to pay for it. And yeah, that underpins a lot of the selling direct model that many of us are talking about now, rather than trying to compete in the mass bookstores. Also, most of the legal cases around AI and copyright are not settled yet. This is really important. This is still all being discussed and uh, disputed, I guess, in court. But this week, Ars Technica reported that OpenAI has disputed author claims that every chat GPT is a derivative work. So there are class action lawsuits uh, with authors, including Sarah Silverman, Paul Tremblay, Um, and some other people, uh, who earlier this year alleged that ChatGPT was illegally trained on pirated copies of the books. OpenAI has motioned to dismiss most of the claims in the lawsuits. Uh, Basically, toss all but one claim alleging direct copyright infringement, which OpenAI hopes to defeat later. The author's other claims, alleging vicarious copyright infringement, violation of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, unfair competition, negligence and unjust enrichment need to be trimmed. Basically, OpenAI claimed that the authors misconceive the scope of copyright, failing to take into account the limitations and exceptions, including fair use, that properly leave room for innovations like the large language models now at the forefront of artificial intelligence. And I've said this before, there is no way that the biggest companies in the world, Google, Microsoft, who basically have taken the massive chunk of OpenAI, Meta, Amazon, these companies have the biggest and best legal firms in the world. There is no way they proceeded with this without understanding the legal side of copyright. So I'm, I find, uh, I, you know, and also it's very, I think it's very telling that individual authors have 
tried to bring a legal case, whereas big publishers haven't. I mean, seriously, the the big legal names have looked at this and they will figure something out. There will be some licensing thing. But definitely, uh, I'm going to link to all this in the show notes, but there's lots going on with copyright na- right now. Also, Stephen King weighed in on, an, on AI in an interview with The Atlantic, um, which is paywalled. So I read the insider highlights, which said... Um, Even human writers need to be readers if they hope to write well. Uploading the works of others to computers or state-of-the-art digital blenders, as he put it, which is definitely not what they are, (laughs) having also learned about the tech behind it. They're not digital blenders. But um, yeah, that's the word he uses. He says, essentially, they can reading, essentially, teach AI how to produce better art. King has said that forbidding programmers from using his words to teach AI is essentially pointless. I might as well be King Canute forbidding the tide to come or a Luddite trying to stop industrial progress by hammering a steam loom to pieces. And of course, I agree with that. And as I talked about last week and have been talking about for years, we need to be part of this conversation and not just deny it's ever going to happen. It is happening. And on this topic, very importantly, I want you to speak out whatever your opinion. You can completely disagree with me uh, and Stephen King and all these people. You can think whatever you like. But the important thing is, if you think it, put it into words. Because the US copyright has opened a public comment period around AI and copyright issues, starting right now. So it began August the 30th, 2023, and it closes on October the 18th, 2023. They looking for comment on the use of copyright works to train AI models, the copyrightability of material generated using AI models, the potential liability for infringing works generated using AI systems, and the treatment of generative AI outputs that imitate the identity or style of the human artist. And it's actually that last one that I think is, I mean, I I think the existing law covers a lot of this stuff, but the treatment of generative AI outputs that imitate identity or style, that's the bit that is important. As As I have said many times, do not use author names, artist names, any brand names in your prompts, and then you hopefully will not infringe. And yeah, I mean, you might not infringe exactly according to the letter of the law, but you might be infringing in a more kind of ethical sense. So don't say, write me a book in the style of Stephen King. But as I've also said, why would we? You and I are not interested in that. We're interested in writing as us. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, you can't, you can go into ChatGPT and say, write this in the style of Joanna Penn or in JF Penn. And, uh, you know, it does a half decent job, to be honest, but that's not my book. (laughs) And you can't publish it as such. (laughs) That's what I mean. The existing law does protect a lot of stuff already. Um, But yeah, I mean, there is currently no law against saying, write me a book in the style of Stephen King. And style is, you know, not necessarily protectable in that way. But uh, yeah, so I want you to comment, please comment. If you're in the USA, you can definitely comment. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's copyright.gov forward slash policy forward slash artificial dash intelligence link in the show notes, but copyright.gov and then artificial intelligence. If you Google that, you're going to find that link. Um, 
I'm gonna. I'm trying to read in the small print as to whether this is USA to citizens only. I might contribute if I can. I contributed to one of these in the UK along with Orna Ross for the Alliance of Independent Authors, and that was about eighteen months ago, possibly longer, when we did that. And it is really important. And what's so funny is when Orna and I did that, we asked quite a few organisations if they would like to comment, and they basically said no. It's nothing to do with us. <laughs> And then, of course, when ChatGPT hit in November 2022, it changed the whole game. So, yeah, I'd really love you to comment. Um, Hopefully lots of people will and it'll be very interesting what happens there. If they want to close that by October 18th, then maybe we'll have some help by the end of the year. Also, an in-depth discussion on AI and um, IP, intellectual property. Check out the interview I did with IP lawyer Catherine Goldman on this show and also her article on the topic at Creative Law Centre, AI-generated content copyright registration is really good. It goes into the difficult aspect of where the line is because this is the thing. People keep sending me emails saying, oh, something 100% generated by a machine is not copyrightable in the US okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although in the UK, our copyright law is a bit different. But in uh, in the US, yes, that's true. But that's not how we use it. That's not how all of us who are using these tools use it. We are, uh, some people use it, Might it might be 10%. I mean, you can't even tell anymore. I couldn't tell you what percentage of my work anymore has some influence of AI. It's just a, it, it, we all, a lot of us just keep this, keep chat open or keep clawed open and we're, we're, we're chatting backwards and forwards and coming up with ideas and it's, it's a back and forth collaborative environment really that's that's kind of how I like to think of it uh, yes yeah, so it, it, if what if it's 10% AI what if it's 51% AI where is the line as to what is protectable and what is not and Catherine Goldman goes into that on her article and she is an IP lawyer so uh, definitely read her comments on that links in the show notes So in personal news, I am pretty tired, to be honest. (laughs) I am in the kind of full second draft edit. So that means full print out the whole book again, go through uh, on writing the shadow. On some chapters, I'm on like the fifth print and edit. There are some very important chapters. The one I worked on uh, yesterday, which just I just was trying to get right, is about the creative wound that may be stopping us from writing in some ways. And that is a really personal chapter. And I think it will be an important chapter because I think many of us have these. And so, yeah, I really want it to be useful. But... (laughs) And then I'm properly, these are not full rewrites. These are hand edits, line edits, and really the tiny finessing that I'm trying to make this book the best it can be before it goes to my editor, Kristen, this week. So uh, yeah, I've got, I I basically asked her, what time will you start? Uh, And she's on Pacific time in the US. So I'll be like, right, you'll have the book by the time you start, but it might not be (laughs) much earlier than that. (laughs) I need every single last minute. Uh, But I'm I'm really, I really need to get this book out. I was having a look at my drafts folder. So I've talked before about how I back up every single day I write and sometimes twice a day, depending on if I've, you know, got significant work. I will basically, I work in Scrivener, I export to MS Word to a doc, and then I email that to myself and then I save it in Dropbox and I save it with a a date stamp. So it might be 
Oh, well, the first one I found, and I only export once the project's got to a point where it's worth exporting. The first uh, compilation draft was 29th of March 2021. And that does not include the many years of notes and podcast episodes, journal ramblings. And also, I heard about the shadow when I was around 17, I guess. So I have been thinking about this for a very long time. But yeah, this book has been a work in progress for a long time. And I want to get this out in the world. Not that I have solved all my issues, but we are all a work in progress and now feels like it has to happen. Uh, it's important. So I'm launching it on Kickstarter in October. And yes, I'm going to keep telling you about that. <laughs> you can go to thecreativepen.com forward slash shadow book to sign up to be notified on launch. Now, I also, from a business perspective, why do I want you to sign up on that page, thecreativepen.com forward slash shadowbook? Well, the reason why is that it's a, it's not a pre-order. You're signing up to be notified on the launch of the Kickstarter project. The reason we do this, those of us who do Kickstarters, and you will if you want to, is that what happens when you hit the button and you do have to press a button that says launch what happens is all the people on that list get notified that the campaign is now open. And the Kickstarter obviously has an algorithm like everything else. And it will see that you've got this uh, goal. And then it will see how fast you fund. And some of those things go into their kind of marketing algorithm and can really help you get more people to find the project. You also get first dibs on the limited rewards, things like consulting and my shadow sessions, writing online webinars. They will be live um, live online as such. And yeah, so I wanted to explain why it's important to many of us if you do want to do that. It is in October and of course I will be talking about it, but please sign up if you are at all interested. It doesn't mean you have to buy, it just means you're notified. Thecreativepen.com forward slash shadow book. You will know that off by heart by the time we go live. And then, of course, I should also mention from a business perspective, if you're interested, that is using Pretty Links, which is a plugin for WordPress. And essentially, what I can do is I will then redirect it. So this is a really good tip. Whatever you're, If you're doing something audio-wise or you're doing something where you want a short link, then you can make short links and then you can redirect them later. I use it a lot for affiliate links. I use it for loads of stuff. Really good for putting links in your books so they're not really, really long, this kind of thing. So that's pretty links that I use as a plugin for WordPress. And whatever site you're on, there's usually some way to do this kind of link. So I also wanted to give a shout out to Claire Lydon and T.B. Markinson at the Lesbians Who Write podcast, who discussed the shadow self in their recent episode 185. I'm so thrilled that this topic is resonating so much that they bring it up on the podcast. And of course, you'd be very welcome to talk about it on your show too. Uh, they talk about it around 25 minutes in. So if you go and find that episode uh, of course, the rest of it's very interesting too, but the shadow bit particularly is around 25 minutes uh, where they talk about the shadow in yourself and also in your characters, which is definitely in the book. And I mentioned in the last show that lazy is a trigger word for me. I would hate to be considered lazy. My self-image, my self-esteem is tied up with my work, which has lots of good sides, but the bad side is not being able to relax and working too much. And TB said, uh, TB Markinson said, 
she's talking about me. <laughs> I also grew up with this thing where you always had to be busy, you always had to be accomplishing things, you always had to be perfect, and it absolutely did a number on me. Uh, so TB, I'm sorry about that, but also I'm really pleased that you talked about it. So thank you so much. They go on to discuss how to use the shadow in writing character wounds in romance in particular. So you can have a listen to that. Just search for Lesbians Who Write on whatever podcast app you're listening to. So thanks for your emails and X's and comments. Kathleen left a comment on the show notes for Joe Solari. Loved this interview. I learned so much and found out that I've been working towards these same things. I'm just on the bottom floor because I'm a new author. Thanks for addressing this timely topic. Great, Kathleen. I'm really glad you're thinking about this. And look, it doesn't matter whether you're a new author or an established author. And in fact, if you're a new author, if you start out with a lot of this business mindset, as I did back in the day, I always, always, always intended to leave my job and be an author as a business. That's what I knew from day one. That is what I wanted. That was my goal. And if you have that goal from the beginning, it actually really helps. (laughs) Because when you're building a business, you know that you have to set up all these things and then it might take Take years to make a sustainable business and all this stuff. It's really good. So fantastic. The Questing Geek sent me a picture on X uh, and is a new listener. I think you're in Seattle and says uh, the pit, uh, they went for a walk overcast with a slight breeze, saw two dogs and a basketball hoop and listened to the Creative Pen podcast, a new podcast for me. So yes, welcome to the show. And uh, yeah, lots of backlist. <laughs> Also, Lydian Penn sent a picture on X, learning how to relax and enjoy my creative journey with more than a little help from Joanna and Mark. And there's a picture of the relaxed author, which I co-wrote with Mark Leslie Lefebvre, next to a bottle of craft cider. And I replied that my drink would be a gin and tonic. And Mark sent a picture of himself with the book and a craft beer, which is his tipple of choice. Lovely. We love to see people relaxing (laughs) with a book and a drink. Uh, That's definitely one of the way I relax too when I can, because clearly I'm always just working too much. (laughs) Dan Padovona as well sent a comment, uh, put a comment on the show notes of the AI interview with Steph Bajonas, said, well, I cannot claim to suffer from the more serious afflictions listed in the discussion. I've noticed a decided improvement in my own health since incorporating AI into the planning and some of the writing process. I no longer experience pain in my hands and wrists and my neck feels much better now that I'm not sitting in front of a computer for two or three hours at a time. That is great to hear. And Dan has his own podcast and is, you know, prolific, has been on the show. So great to hear that. um, And I guess Steph and I weren't saying, oh, you can only use AI to help you if you have a disability or you have chronic pain or any of this. What we're saying is it can help you wherever you are in your author journey as a tool. So that was a couple of episodes ago with Steph Pajonas. So please leave a comment on the show notes on the podcast at thecreativepen.com or on the YouTube channel, or you can X me at thecreativepen with a double N, which is once again, my main social media platform. I'm just, yeah. I'm just back in there. (laughs) Or email me and send me pictures of where you're listening. Joanna at thecreativepen.com. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. 
So this episode is sponsored by Ingram Spark. I use Ingram Spark to print and distribute my self-published print books wide because Ingram Spark helps me share my story with the world. And just to be clear, this is how I do it. I use KDP Print for Amazon only and do not use extended distribution. I use Ingram Spark for bookstores, libraries, universities, and all the things they do. And I use bookvault.app for my Shopify stores, creativepenbooks.com and jfpenbooks.com. They all reach readers in different markets with print products. So why even consider Ingram Spark? Well, if you only use KDP Print, bookstores, libraries, universities, print-on-demand sites in many countries will not even consider your book because you need to offer a discount. Remember, this is how bookstores make a living. They make a living because of the discount between the cost and what they sell it for. Also, you will be in their catalogue. Bookstores, universities, all this, libraries, they don't order from Amazon. Remember this. So if your books are only on Amazon, then they will not be able to order your book. Uh, If you care about getting your book into these places, you need to go wide with print. And remember, this is not KU, which is for ebooks only. Even if you're exclusive for ebooks, you can still do print with Ingram Spark. You will have access to over 40,000 retailers, independent bookstores, libraries, schools and universities, chain bookstores and more across a global network of distributors, including Foils, Blackwells and Waterstones in the UK, Bookshop.org, Booktopia in Australia and New Zealand, Chapters Indigo in Canada, Walmart, Target and loads of independent bookstores in the USA. Of course, it means your book will be available to order but we still have to drive demand. But since having my books on Ingram Spark, I've had many of you send me pictures of my print books in libraries and bookstores. I also sell at conventions and book fairs and things. And often what happens there is you have to provide your ISBNs and they'll order it into the shop and then uh, you eventually get paid. But essentially, if they're not there, they can't order them. You can choose to use returns, but it's not necessary. I don't do returns. And you can choose your discount percentage. And on that, just an update, Ingram emailed to say the wholesale discount has to be at least 40% in the USA now. So if you're under that, go check your books. And I have to check my books. (laughs) And remember, this is how bookstores make their money. That's why we discount You can also bulk order, for example, if you're speaking somewhere and want back of their own copies, or if you work direct with schools or bookstores, which many of you do, uh, they can email you. You can order them from Ingram and get them shipped in boxes to the location and then invoice. It all works very well. Also, Ingram Spark now has free book set up for print or ebooks and offers free revisions on your book for the first 60 days. So what are you waiting for? Share your story with the world and head on over to ingramspark.com. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time is sponsored by my patrons and they especially support the in-between episodes on AI and other futurist topics and, of course, We have one coming up, which I'll mention later after the show. And if you didn't know, at the end of every episode, I say something and I tell you what's coming next week. So there will be an an in-between episode coming soon. I'm especially grateful to those patrons who've been supporting the show for years and months. You are all amazing. And of course, I'm really going to be doubling down on my patron stuff uh, once I kind of move into 
my next reinvention, which I will talk about more as time goes by. But don't worry, you'll still have the podcast. It still happen. Um, but yeah, hopefully lots more for patrons. Thanks to new patrons and returning patrons this week. J. Elizabeth Vincent, Christian Birch, Christine Ziga, Karen Heenan, Nikki Gulane, Marie Madigan, Michelle Badger, Marion Hill and Morgana Best. And uh, Morgana's been on the show. She is a fantastic author and Shopify whiz. So you can listen to uh, her talk about Shopify uh, and lots of that at thecreativepen.com forward slash sell direct resources, thecreativepen.com forward slash sell direct resources to find her interview and lots more on selling direct. If you support the show on Patreon, you get my extra monthly Q&A and the extra stuff I do. So I've done some videos on mid-journey and um, Claude 100k model for writing and other marketing stuff. And in the Q&A, I answer questions about writing craft, publishing, book marketing and making money with your writing. You can support the show for just a few, whatever the currency is. like it's a coffee a month or a couple of coffees a month if you're feeling generous, you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Holger Niels Pohl is a visual strategist, professional speaker, trainer and coach. He's also the author of multiple books from business to children's books, as well as the co-creator of an award-winning business board game. So welcome to the show, Holger. Thank you for having me, Joe. Oh, no, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, before we get into it, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. Yeah, so while we're talking here in 2023, I'm 43 years old. And I was a late reader of books, I would say. So until the age of 14, I'd only read comics and magazines, but nothing that was kind of like a book. I didn't like German or English in school. And I'm coming from Germany, by the way, how you might already know from my accent. But I found my passion for reading crime and science fiction, as well as fantasy. A bit later, at the age of 14, 15, I started to read and then I never stopped and I'm kind of a whale reader. I read very fast and very much, and I always have trouble to find more new books that I can read because somehow I read faster than the market can provide me with books sometimes. <laughs> and I I loved uh, pen and pen role-playing and uh, as well developed new worlds and systems with my friends to play that. Uh, but I never had the urge to write anything, but to create. I love to create. And I got distracted from all of this by university because I had to find something that is worthwhile spending your working life. Everybody told me you need to be an engineer or doing something proper and not being just creative. By now we know that this was stupid advice, but back then I didn't know when I tried architecture, I broke up from university after one and a half years. I became a carpenter then, did an apprenticeship as a carpenter and afterwards became a designer. And luckily enough, that was a good fit for me. And in 2009, I started my self-employment right after the university. And I work with visuals. I teach as well people to draw. But at some point, people were begging me to write about my knowledge about business, as well as how we can communicate better with visual tools and everything I have done in the past. And people asked me for so long, basically for three or four years that I started writing. And then I never get out of that again, right? I started writing 
and I couldn't stop. And somehow the nonfiction opened up as well an avenue for my fiction writing. So I wanted to write fiction and now I'm all over the place with writing while still being a consultant and coach uh, full-time. Well, can I also ask you about the self-publishing site? Because you and I have been connected now for many years. Yeah. And I feel like, uh, I don't even know, do you know how many years? Um, I, I I mean, I'm following you for, I guess, seven years now. So, yeah. Okay, so seven years, so maybe 2016-ish. And it's interesting because, of course, Germany, I feel, is even more traditional around literature and oh, yeah. proper books and proper <laughs> publishing. So how did you break out of that mindset? Or, or is that just part of you being more of a sort of designer type, <laughs> I guess? Because it is, it's very strong, a strong feeling in Germany, I think, not oh, yeah. to be self-published. Although I know some Germans listening, we like, no, no, we're a very big indie community, but it has been a, a slower trend, I think. Oh yeah, definitely. And I would still say it's predominantly traditional publishing here in Germany. I actually had my first book, Traditional Published, and it was a huge failure in terms of the sales. I still get my check which is basically 12 euros per year or something. So we, <laughs> we sell like 10 to 20 books per year with a publisher. And that was from year one. So it was not that we had a high peak or something. And I was super disappointed with that first book, especially with the process with the traditional publisher. And that was basically the thing that pushed me into self-publishing because I said, I can do that better, right? If mm -hmm. I could decide the things myself, that the publisher decided for me in that case, this could have been a better book. And that drove me to self-publishing and actually to your podcast in the first place, because I think the first book I published in 2015, and I listened to you and, and thought like, I can do that myself. But saying that, it's still super difficult to do that in Germany, especially. It's way easier for me to publish in the US, the UK, everywhere around the world not in the German-speaking um, countries. Mm. Yes, yeah. and I've heard that from other German indie authors, but these things emerge at different times in different countries. And I, and people listening, we've got listeners from over 220 countries, and I think yeah. it's probably still much easier in Germany than it is <laughs> in a lot of countries in the world. Oh, yeah. So we appreciate you listeners <laughs> in other places. But let's get back to your books and what you do, because you are, as you mentioned, you're a, a designer, you're a creator, and you use a lot of visual images. And it's very hard because this is a, an audio medium. But tell us, how does your creative process work differently in terms of distilling ideas into visual images versus words? Because they're just so different. Yeah, that's true. So let me just back up for a second and give a short definition of what we say when we mean mm. visuals. And again, that is difficult to explain with only audio, but I think we will manage. So I don't mean paintings or photographs or generated pictures when I say visuals. So when I say visuals, I mainly mean drawings that are quickly done, more like icons, I would say. If you imagine a picture in your head right now, it could be like a, a hand-drawn icon, I would say. And then perhaps emojis to express ideas and concepts. I think that's what I say when I say visuals. You're, on your style, I almost think of it as professional cartooning. 
<laughs> okay. If you if you see it like that, we can say that to you. Okay, I agree with that. <laughs> is that okay? I mean, yeah, I feel like okay. it's, it's it's got more that vibe. It, as you say, it's kind of hand hand drawn, but it looks more professional than yeah. like I would hand draw something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I can agree on that. So, and a lot of people when they see my work, they think that I think as well in visuals, right? And I distill ideas right into visuals. But the funny thing is, I always need need the words first before I can put them into visuals, right? Because still, uh, my brain works based on words. And I think all the brains we have work based on words. Of course, we have visuals in our head, but most of the time we think in logical structures, step-by-step step in words. And I translate those words into visuals. So what I do is, first of all, and I think your question brought me to a new insights, actually. I think the first most important thing is intention. So compared to other people, when I am in a creative process, I have the intention to make something visual compared to just writing words down. So everything I listen to, I always translate them in parallel to how could I express that in visuals? How would that look like in a structure? How would things be connected to each other? Would that be a Venn diagram? Would that be like a pie chart? Would that be a timeline? Which kind of visuals would I use? And I'm always reflecting on when I hear something, how would that look like? And it makes it easier for me to see my ideas as well, because if I only have words, sometimes it's difficult to read through them. It takes a long time. Mm. When I see a visual that I have drawn, everything becomes super clear very fast to me. I'm just writing some notes down there because you said there that you have words first and you make them into images. I wasn't expecting that because for me <laughs> as a creative, I see images first and then I have to put them into words. You see. You see, I mean, especially, well, for my fiction, anyway, for fiction, it's like my latest in my novella catacomb. I had such a clear, it's like, it was like a movie in my head. I can Mm. see the characters running down into the earth, into the catacomb, and I could see it all. And then I had to just get it into words. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there's this tropical underground forest and I had to describe that. I could see it. I just mm-hmm. had to find the words. And so that's so interesting that you, yeah. I just didn't expect you to say that. I thought no. that you almost had the little people doing the things in your mind and then you just drew them and then you wrote up the words later. <laughs> All right. No, I mean, you can't even go so far. If you would put me into a, a dark room, right? Close the door, shut down the windows. It's it's pitch black in the room. I don't see anything. Oh, I, I think there's a name for that. There's some kind of name for it. I've heard someone else talk about that too. Yeah. it's For me, it's words. Sometimes I might see kind of a movie scene or something, but basically I think about a story first in words and those words would trigger a scene for me. Mm. Wow. Do you you hear it or you, you... Are you because some people I know write, they say they take dictation almost mm-hmm. as if they hear it. My mum, when she wrote books, she kind of was like, I hear these things. Um, I never hear anything. Do, do, it, how do you experience those words? Yeah, I don't I don't hear them either. It's more like I or I would say it's like I would talk to myself in my head. Let's say it like that. So I, you mm. could say I hear them. Um, sometimes I have a scent. So that I smell something. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a color that I see. Sometimes it's a, a touch, like a feeling or so. But there is ne- very seldomly there is a picture first, very seldomly. 
I love that. That's so interesting. And I mean, just sort of coming to you talk openly about being autistic, and I don't think mm. this is part of it. I think it's a completely different spectrum yeah. of how we create. But maybe talk a bit about that, because I think this is so important. I mean, neurodiversity even just talking to anyone and asking like this question, how do you see visual images or words? I mean, we all think so differently. And yet I think sometimes we assume that we just, things are the same for other people. So how, d- tell us a bit more about your experience of being autistic and how does neurodiversity help as a creative? So first of all, I think it's important that I didn't know I'm autistic for 40 years of my life. Mm. So I only know that for three years now. So I'm kind of a freshling, a newbie in that field of knowing myself as an autistic person. And it came a bit of a surprise because I I can do masking very well. So masking is the activity of pretending that you are neurotypical, not neurodiverse, but you are as everybody else, while you're not as everybody else. So just pretending you're understanding a joke and laughing like everybody else and nobody recognizes you didn't find the joke funny or even understood the joke. So, and I masked so properly that I didn't even notice myself that I am different to other people. So I mask for myself too. And for three years now, I know I'm autistic and that helped a lot. I mean, that created a lot of challenges and problems to be very fair, but as well as opened up a whole new world for me, understanding how I work and how everything in my life functions, basically, right? So I had to understand, first of all, that I have a lot of strengths that are related to my autistic being, which is, for example, seeing patterns everywhere. Due to the need of understanding everybody through my cognition. So as an autistic person, I don't feel what you feel, but I see what you feel right? Mm. But I don't really feel your emotions because I don't feel my emotions very well either. But I can understand by how you clinch your eyes and how you move your mouth. I can very precisely forecast what are your emotions right now and therefore react accordingly. So I'm pretty good in in finding patterns, which helps me with my nonfiction writing because everybody asks me like, how can you know what we're talking about so fast? That's only because I listen very carefully and very intentionally for every single clue in a conversation and then very quickly can forecast what will happen in the next 10, 15 minutes. As well, I can see through the surface because I don't care for emotions too much. So if if everybody is raging about whatever it is, let's take AI, and everybody (laughs) is emotionally about that topic, I don't care for that too much, right? I just want to know the facts and figures, how it works, why it works, what's the problem, what's not the problem, how can it help? And I don't get emotional about it. So that helps me in my creative process because I can stay clear of all those emotions. I'm I'm still, when you talked about masking for myself, mm-hmm. I don't think this is just an autistic no, thing. No, that's, uh, that's an <laughs> I mean, introvert I, thing too and a, neuro, it, a, a neurotypical thing too, but not Yeah, a, well, I mean, I don't, I, I, obviously there's a spectrum of everything. Um, yeah, exactly. But when you say that, I mean, I remember when I, discovered i mean susan kane's book quiet made a huge difference in my life and a lot of people's life because mm-hmm. i feel like introverts we have had to i mean i'm old a bit older than you 48 but i almost had to pretend to be an extrovert for 35 years right. 
yeah. because that's how we're expected to behave. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about humor there and laughing. Oh my goodness, I I literally don't have a sense of humor. I feel like I'm always fake laughing at things. I'm laughing now because I'm laughing at myself. But it, yeah. it's so interesting, isn't it? But I and so for people listening, I mean, masking for yourself is a really challenging statement. That, however you wherever you are on a neurodiverse scale. Yeah. It's something that we should all be questioning. Like, where do we mask for mm-hmm. ourselves and why are we doing that? I mean, you're one of my patrons, you know, about my shadow book. Yeah. Um, this is something I've been thinking about a lot and it's very damaging to do that. So, I mean, how did you break out of or, or how, oh, yeah, how did you break out of expectations to live, I guess, more authentically and be more you and get rid of some of that masking? Yeah, I think I'm. I'm still on the journey. Um, Are we all? And I, yeah, <laughs> and I didn't really completely <laughs> broke out of that. But so one thing is, like, um, I'm under chronic pain as well. I have headaches like basically every day since like 15 years or something, and this demands of a change, right? So if you are under pressure, uh, change is a bit easier. I started telling people about it, so it enables me to act more as myself without stepping onto toes of like, if somebody's questioning why I behave differently right now, at least they know and they can decide for themselves. That helped me instead of just behaving differently and everybody's asking like, what's happening to Holger? The other thing is that I understood, for example, dealing with the energy loss when I am with other people. And I know you talked about that on events, right? Mm. For me, it's kind of the same on a very high scale, I would say. I'm losing a lot of energy. And I have a job. I am a coaching trainer and consultant. So basically what I do is standing in front of people and helping them get through their complexity. And I had to understand that I need to rest afterwards. I can't go, for example, for a dinner with the clients because after a full day of workshop, I have to rest because otherwise Mm -hmm. I can't do the next day properly. So it's more small things often enough or bigger things when I have more private contact like with you or... Uh, with family and friends, people who I know, I can be a bit more open, speak about it, and perhaps not smile all the time because I can <laughs> just relax sometimes. Yeah. I love that. It's really, it is hard. And it's funny because we're recording this in August. I am almost preparing now to go to 20 Books Vegas in November oh, yeah. um, because I've talked about backing out of it last it was last year. I had a ticket and didn't go because I was so worried about the whole energy thing. And I'm trying to incorporate all these practices. Like you say, you just have to go and be somewhere else. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's how we have to manage it. But it is interesting because of course, and I used to have headaches every day when I was a consultant and worked in a in an office. I, I was popping pills every day and I got very sick. So how do you manage that then as a consultant doing the work you do? Because like you say, so much of your work is giving to other people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. How how do you manage that? Is is part of your writing and doing these books and building your store and everything, is that trying to offset that people time? Yeah, pretty much so. So definitely publishing is one way to reduce the on-site time with people into products that I can sell without spending time. Mm. And there is another advantage of being autistic, which is hyperfocus. And I can click on hyperfocus anytime. And I can do that for eight hours straight. And I can do that for three days straight, basically. And nobody will ever get a slightest clue that 
it's hard for me because I can step into that hyper-focus and be the so-called showman, right? And mm-hmm. help people what they have to go through. Afterwards, I'm pretty destroyed, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, but for a certain time, I can I can do that. Just just changing my mindset as well, the intention, and stepping on in as a different person, actually. Yeah, I, I think, and I can do this too. And I would say this is partly extroverting. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. have that hyper focus that you do. I think that is one of the. Um, do we still call it Aspergers or? Yeah, you like. I would say you can. Some people say you don't. Um, I don't care for like. That's another thing where I don't care too much. I think about the label, but it is. Yeah. Um, there are people who have been characterized with those words yeah. are people who do have that hyper focus, yeah. um, kind of high functioning, extreme high functioning, and yeah. I certainly don't have that. But I do have that exhaustion <laughs> afterwards, and I feel like it's an extroversion. But I think the other thing is how important it is. So we're not saying to people listening that we don't want to do this. We're saying that it's incredibly important to do this for both of us, but it is, it takes something out of us. But I think many people listening probably feel the same. And yet it is so important, isn't it? You do, you must love a part of it. Oh yeah, definitely. And that's the difficult thing to explain, right? Mm. I, I really enjoy being with people Mm. and talking about the things that I am interested in or they are interested in, and I can help with that. And I grow when I meet people and I learn something new and I love being with people because it inspires me. Mm. So it gives me something and this gives me as well energy. But on another level, I lose a lot of energy as well. Mm. So it's kind of this, the same thing at the same time kind of thing. It's difficult. It's catch 22. And yeah. Yeah. we need to acknowledge that because that, that makes it more difficult because we want to meet people. And it's really enjoyable, but we need some rest afterwards or have to deal with that in another way. Yeah, absolutely. I And I feel like it's even more important, becoming more important to do this kind of thing in a, yeah. in, a in the world where a lot, a lot more is AI generated. Of course, you know, I'm positive about yeah. AI, but I also want to connect with people. So I think that's important. But let's come back to your books, because I want to talk yeah. about creating clarity, which I have a copy here. It is mm-hmm. incredibly high quality. It is heavy. Yeah. It's a heavy book. It's got a lot of color. It's got, of course, the illustrations, your drawings, as well as, you know, it's basically a business book but you published it through kickstarter you raised over 30,000 euro which mm-hmm. is fantastic and now you obviously you sell it on your online store you sell it in different ways so tell us i guess first of all tell us a, a bit about the book itself why did you want to do such it's it's a really sort of magnum opus <laughs> book it's a hell of a book so why did you want to do this project in the first place yeah so first of all this is the book that everybody was begging me to write mm. so People were nudging me right, left, and center to to put what I know into a book. And I honestly didn't find a way to do two books out of this, right? Even mm. though I thought it could be two books, but I didn't find a proper way to do it. So I decided to make it one book. So that's why it's so big. It's 1.1 kilograms. So it's pretty heavy. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a proper book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a proper book. And it's not even hardcover, right? It's paperback, so... But it's lovely quality. I think that's really important. I mean, and partly books are heavier when you use high quality paper, right? So that's probably why it's so heavy. (laughs) Yeah. And so what I found is when I have books that are really important to me, like from other authors, 
I really enjoy if they have a version of the book that is higher quality than the trade paperback mm. because I want to read it more often than one time. I want to put notes into it. I want to put post-its into it. I want to have it on my desk for a time and put it back to the to the storage and then get it back to the table again and work with it. So I enjoy high quality books that I can work with. So that's why I wanted to create that. And I knew as per my topic, visual tools, I need to have visuals in it because I can't write about leveraging that side of our brain, the visual part, without having a proper example in terms of a book. And the whole book should be an example of how to work with visuals and how to create clarity. I think that's even more important because I, I promise that you can create clarity when you read that book, but then the book needs to be super clear as well. And that demanded of me like uh, a good design, working with a lot of white space, which cost again, in terms of the page numbers, um, and a lot of visuals. So that's mm. why I decided to make it the way you have it now in your hands. Mm. And tell us, I mean, I, it's interesting, I think partly you doing this. And also when I look at the books I have, I also, I wrote in my journal the other day, I want to make beautiful books. That's mm -hmm. how I want my next 15 years to be. It's yeah. not just that I want to put my words into beautiful books. I want to create beautiful objects. And again, I feel like we're moving from a time where I mean, digital is going to be much easier to yeah. make. Well, it is. It's a one click. But yeah. to make a hard copy of a beautiful book, <laughs> this is going to be the hard work, right? So tell us about the challenges of creating such a, a beautiful book. Yeah. So the first challenge is that most of the advice that you get online is for textbooks, right? So if you are like learning on your own, like I do most of the time, It's very hard to find good advice for these types of books because most people are talking about book publishing, they're talking about textbooks, mm. even though you have some people are talking about children's books, but then in terms of how to really do it, you don't get so much advice. I think I have an advantage because I am a trained designer, so I could do everything on my own. So I think that needs to be clear. It's an unfair advantage, I guess, because I wrote the book, I created the sketches, And I layouted everything myself up until the physical print production. So I could do all of that on my own. I think that helps. But it cost me like hours and days and weeks of my time as well. Mm. The challenge, I think, with such a physical product is as well the timing because you need to order paper to see how the paper looks like, how the print on the paper would look like. You need to have perhaps a test book where, they, where the printer creates the whole book without the content, but just an empty book to see how would it feel like, how heavy is it, how big. Um, you're doing all those test prints all the time. I just spoke today to my printer because I'm working on a on children's books for uh, or around the topic of autism. And this should be a super nice book as well and a very high quality book. So I'm talking to them if they produce another test print and if they produce another binding test and all these kind of things. And that takes time. And as well, I have to pay for those. So it, it costs extra money too. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. And of course there are levels of printing. So, I mean, you know about my pilgrimage hardback and I still think it's a, a beautiful book. It is it still is. 
print on demand. The hardback is still print on demand, but it's much higher quality than what we've been able to do before. But yes, your paper definitely feels different. Um, And this is interesting then, because obviously you had to do all of that work before the Kickstarter. um, Because so you raised over 30,000 euro, but it was a very expensive process. And then that also, the shipping's on top of that, isn't it? So yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 expensive to ship and, and all of that kind of thing. So just to talk a bit about the return on investment for nonfiction authors like yourself, because it wasn't just the Kickstarter, was it? <laughs> this is the basis of your consulting as well. Yeah, true. So yeah, just in terms of the numbers, I mean, just the book itself, right? I ordered a, a print run. So meaning I I paid for printed copies, not print on demand. Mm. I ordered 1,500 books. And I still had to pay over eight euros per book. Wow. Right. Mm. So it comes at a price. So I had to order a lot of books to have at least a somewhat feasible price for the book. And that is a challenge. So that why that's actually why I used Kickstarter, because I said I can't invest that much money into a book before I have them. I'm sure that somebody will really buy it. I wasn't wasn't a bit unclear if that would be really a success. I I was happy that it was. And so basically at the end of the whole campaign, I get out of a profit of 4,000 euros. That's my my profit after raising 30,000 euros. Okay. So it's not a feasible business model. It's not a get rich quick scheme on Kickstarter with such a book. But what it did is it created a lot of buzz. So as you know, it's kind of a high high buzz uh, project, these kind of Kickstarter campaigns. It's a good marketing tool. I got a lot of new followers online. I got a lot of new people on my newsletter due to the buzz that people created around my Kickstarter campaign. And that in itself was worthwhile without me investing money because I at least I got out with 5,000 extra. So it didn't cost me in terms of the marketing or not extra at least. And so that was one part, the marketing piece, as well, a bit of money, the 5,000, as well as having a few people very engaged, those Kickstarter people I could use as well and leverage when I republished it basically afterwards on my own store. And I'm a white author, so I'm publishing on Amazon and Apple and Kobo and whatever in, in bookstores. So when I launched the book, officially to the market, all those Kickstarter backers helped me, or a few of them at least, helped me to spread the word and told their people and say, look, I got this book, now you can get it too. And I got quite a few orders again when I published the book to the market. So that helped too. And of course, last but not least, it's basically like a credibility product. So people Mm -hmm. know, I know what I talk about. I can give that to my clients. I do workshops around that. People pay me a lot of money to come to their events and talk about the topic of creating clarity and how they could use that for their business. So it's a, it's not the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter just helped me having that very clear that people want to have that book because the campaign is successful as well having the money to print enough books that and then can give away for free basically now yeah i think it's so important you basically and you spent a lot obviously of time and money there to make a the best product you could possibly make that's essentially what this book is it really is very high quality and so you have an asset 
that is now the basis of a business, which is about, as you say, the visuals, but also you as a, a designer, I think from the beginning, as you talked about, that's part of your brand. If you yeah. didn't have such a high quality book, it would affect your brand. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of evidence for what you're offering to bring to, to a business or a client, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's my, it's my brand promise basically. Yeah. Exactly. I, I will spend that eye for the detail uh, and for the best thing that we can create with my clients too, that I spend on the book. And I think this is something I want people to think about and what I'm thinking about now, which is I want people to have a book on their shelf that represents my brand that stands out in a different way, you know, that yeah. is some incredible uh, book. So you helped me with my first Kickstarter, mm-hmm. really appreciated your help with, but just tell people any lessons learned from Kickstarter because you've done another campaign, haven't you? Other campaigns. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, give us some advice or lessons learned. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I did actually by now three campaigns and all were like in that range of 30 to 50,000 euros. And yeah, I have put together six kind of learnings or insights. Let's go through them quickly. Let's see. I hope they help and they are not too negative here, but it's not a, like, it's important that it's not a get rich quick scheme. I think I want to repeat that. There are some outliers out there that paint basically the wrong picture, I would say. Even though if there are high numbers, sometimes the profit is not that high and we need to be prepared for that. You can earn a living by doing a lot of Kickstarter campaigns, yes, but it is a lot of effort as well. And it's not that you get the money for free. I think that's important. That would be my first one. And then the second very important one, don't underestimate the time investment. And I mean, Joe, I I told you (laughs) You how how much time it will take and you didn't believe me. No, I, um. I thought I had accounted for it. And then I realized I hadn't. And I, yeah, it definitely, it's a lot of work. Although I feel yeah. like, again, I feel like there are different ways to do Kickstarters and that oh, possibly yeah. the people who do four or six a year are doing it differently to how you and I have done it. Absolutely. So yeah. Yeah. Mm. If you get into a routine, it might be easier. Mm. But if it's not your routine, it doesn't matter if you do a 12 day or a 30 day campaign, you should plan like around two months. Uh, that you spend and do nothing more than the Kickstarter, actually, mm, from my yeah. experience, at least. Um, over-communication is important. You should communicate more than you sh- think you should, right? It's You have to keep talking about your Kickstarter, especially before the campaign, but then during the campaign to your backers and to possible new backers, and as well after the campaign, what's your process looking like? You have to communicate more often than you would normally do with a newsletter or when you launch a book or something, because you need to create that trust to your people who are paying you on Kickstarter, basically, and giving you like pre-trusting you with their money. I found it's very important that you answer fast and you update very often to keep everybody happy. I think that will be the third point. The fourth is make it you, right? Don't like people trust you. They buy from you. You don't use marketing slang or like copy pasting something. You have to make it personal. So people will then come and buy from you. And I think that counts not only for Kickstarter, but for everything else we do nowadays, mm. but especially by, on Kickstarter, I think it's less about the product that you sell in, in terms of the book, because there are many books on Kickstarter too. It's as well about you, your story. Why do you, why did you write the book? 
Why do you want to sell it on Kickstarter? It's about you. I think that's important. And then, yeah, the two others were start early. Don't plan your campaign. Don't tell, and then not telling anybody. But perhaps two, three months early, you launch the preview website on Kickstarter and then tell people about it a few months early so you can build the bus. So it's nothing that you just start from nothing you should communicate before. And the last one is that you don't overpromise. I think you did that as well in a good way, having the book finished when you do your Kickstarter campaign, not still mm -hmm. writing the book. Yeah. And I think that's a recommendation that I've heard from others like Monica Leonel and Russell Nolte and people like that. Like finish the book first yeah, <laughs> because you just have a whole load of other stuff to do. Yeah. There's enough to do with fulfilling a Kickstarter. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and if you have to finish it too. And it's so funny. So we're recording this in August and when this goes out on the show, I should have my pre-launch page up for <laughs> what is still the shadow book. But by the time this goes out, I will probably in my introduction have, have directed people there. So exactly what you say, having a pre-launch page up really as early as possible, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Because the campaign is much shorter. I feel like as independent authors, we've been so used to running longer marketing. You know, we're mm. used to just ongoing marketing for years, whereas this really is sort of a, a couple of weeks. Yeah, true. It's very fast, very fast paced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is super. So just a, a couple more questions. First of all, I wanted to just ask you about creating clarity as a topic, <laughs> because <laughs> it does feel like there is so much noise. So for authors listening, there are so many things to know and I mean I'm just as responsible as anyone else for having another podcast that <laughs> has offers me people more tips every week or whatever and but there's so much noise publishing options marketing options we mentioned AI I mean there's a lot of yeah. noise so how can people create clarity for themselves around their creative choices and cut through the noise yeah that's a very good question and I try to answer it like briefly and see how we can help here the first thing, I think the most important thing is um, to do things with intention, not just doing things because somebody says something or there is a new trend or like this is the holy grail of publishing, but doing everything with intention, meaning not, not doing anything right away when you see it, but just pause, take a deep breath and think about, is that something for me, right? That will be the first step. And if you get to that, to that step, I would say understanding that the only thing that you can really influence is yourself. Around us, everything else changes all the time. As you said, there is technology. There might be AI, then there is Scrivener, there's Word for you to write in. You could write in longhand. There is as well your business model. Do you go exclusive with some of the companies or do you choose subscription or Kickstarter or wide or direct? And and then there are all the channels of like Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and email and whatnot. So everything around us is changing all the time and we have close to no influence on it, right? I think that's important to notice because if you notice that, you could think of yourself and say, what are my goals and values and preferences to work? And sit down and write that. Perhaps you take a piece of paper and write that in the center of the paper. You ask yourself, what are your goals, your values, and the, your preferences? And when you have done that, you can write all the technologies and the business models and the channels down on that paper as well. And you write, for example, on technology, 
on the right upper corner and say, there is AI, there's Scrivener, there's Longhand, there's Vellum, there's whatever you use for writing, for example, or publishing. Then on the right bottom corner, you could use your business model, which could be exclusive or direct or white or Kickstarter, whatever comes to your mind, subscription. And on the left, you could put all the channels, social media and email and and what you have there, events, for example, fairs or something. And if you look at all these things around you, you could do a quick emotional check. I learned that from my coach, and I know you know him well, Mark McGuinness. He's like a my long-term business coach. Mm. And he taught me the emotional scale. So everything that's coming up out there, and let's take, for example, the subscription model that a lot of people talk about nowadays to not take AI here. So let's take subscription. <laughs> if you take subscription, place yourself on a scale from zero to 10. Zero would mean you would be really unhappy and feeling unwell doing subscription. And 10 means you would be super happy about it and it would be easy for you. And you do that scale for everything that comes up. And just to take you, Joe, as an example, we heard about TikTok and that you decided to not use it. I would say on the scale, you would be rather close to the zero somewhere. <laughs> I am at uh, zero with TikTok. Yeah, for TikTok, <laughs> which means you don't embrace that direction. It's not for you. Mm. If you do that exercise of knowing what your values and preferences are and then checking emo just from your gut feeling, right? And saying that as an autistic individual, but we have gut feeling too. Um, <laughs> you just think of, is that creating resistance in myself or would that feel easy to embrace? And if so, then should I do it or not? And you just think about that. Just putting that on a piece of paper might create a lot more clarity than just getting all the insights all the time and only thinking about them because that creates most often the fear of missing out and the not knowing what to do next. I love that. And I also think that as writers, writing these things can help us because this is a way yeah. that we do work things out. And yeah, and I think also repeating that kind of exercise over time. So if you're someone listening who has gone certain routes and then you do this exercise again on what you have already built, that mm -hmm. might be when you decide to stop doing things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you could, you could use that as a dashboard kind of thing that you mm. revisit every quarter, every year, whatever you want to, mm. or depending on your practice. So I write fiction, nonfiction, children's books and all that kind of stuff. So for example, for my fiction, I'm writing fantasy. I decided on longhand writing because that feels just better for fiction for me. Mm. Uh, whereas I use artificial intelligence to to co-write with Chat GPT about a very personal autistic topic be because I need to talk to somebody who can't like can't uh, run away from me when I talk about it. <laughs> and so I choose AI for that topic. So it doesn't have always to be the same. Mm, that's interesting. A lot of people using it as a kind of therapist or acting as a therapist. I mean, I've been 
talking a lot if we say talking or typing <laughs> or whatever uh, about different things that yeah you don't want to necessarily share with a human which yeah. <laughs> is quite interesting but we're straying into ai so let's um, let's come back we're, we're almost out of time but i did want to just come back on your your ch- you mentioned a children's book yeah. um about autism or for children with autism can you talk a bit about, more about that because i feel like that we are in a, a point in history when this is far more acceptable to talk about like you said this wasn't something we talked about when we were children um so we obviously need these kind of resources so tell us about that book and when people might be able to to get that yeah so if you're english speaking it will be called the wrong planet and in german it will be called falscher planet and it's a children's book about an alien that is a shapeshifter and lands mistakenly on earth on this wrong planet. And that's how a lot of autistic individuals feel here on earth as being on the wrong planet. And it's shape-shifting when it's meeting different kinds of animals, but never fits in completely. So it always stays kind of a strange thing. It's still green. It still has only one eye, but it looks like a duck somehow. And it tries to interact and never succeeds. And throughout the story, it meets like five different animals and learns that it somehow didn't manage to properly communicate with them until it meets another last animal that's the platypus which uh, which is a strange animal in itself and they become friends and talk about being just different and that's okay to be different and it's a highly like a highly professional illustrated book i didn't illustrate that myself but my illustrator did that uh, in a very classical kid style so it will be a very high quality book again and it has the first part, the story, in rhymes, so completely rhymed. And then the second part, there's a second part that explains basically different situations that our main protagonist, the alien, um, experienced throughout the book. So if somebody is asking how specifically is that about autism, they can look up at the end of the book and say, okay, this is about special interest. This is about masking. This is about loud noises. This is about understanding jokes and how it is difficult for autistic individuals. So my aim for that would be, and that came from knowing that two of my three children are autistic as well. My aim is that either parents could read that with their kids or teachers could read that with their classes to just speak about autism, have people understand it. We explained the class of our son, uh, how our son feels in the class just with the draft of the book. So you can relate to that in a different way than just having another nonfiction book about autism, but having a story that guides you through a very emotional journey. So I had a lot of people cry when I read the draft to them. Uh, I'm almost crying now. I feel like we all need this book. I think maybe it's a parable book, you know, like some kids' books are also for adults. Is that kind of what it is? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I will publish that in November in English and German. So I wrote the German myself with a German editor, of course, and I had somebody professionally edit and translate in English because translating rhymes from one language into the other is another art form. (laughs) <laughs> that is tough. And where can people find? I mean, we're, this is 2023. It will be available November 2023. Yeah. Um, but yeah, tell people where they can find your books and everything else you do online. Yes. So best you go to my website, which is holgernielspol.com. 
holgerjoel.com. Uh, I spell it out. It's H-O-L-G-E-R-N-I-L-S-P-O-H-L.com. I know it's a diff difficult name, but if you type something similar into Google, you'll find me. <laughs> and there will be everything, my services as well as my books. And Joanna, we talked about that. We talk about visuals here. So I will prepare something for your listeners on my website. So you go to holgernielspoll.com slash pen with a double N. And they will find some examples of the visuals we talked about as well. The process of how they could get clarity to cut through the noise that we spoke about here mm. in our chat. No, that would be fantastic. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Holger. That was great. Thank you, Jenna, for having me. It was a blast. So I hope you found the discussion with Holger interesting. And I certainly am fascinated that our minds are so different when we create. I think it's just amazing. And I want to learn more about that. I also said to Holger that we need a sign up for the kids autism book as I want to read it. And I'm sure many of you would be interested too. So you can go to holgernilspoll.com forward slash autism. And I've put that in the show notes. Uh, I think that book, I'm re I'm just really interested in it. And we don't, we don't, we're child free, happily child free but I think it's really important so yeah holgernealspoll.com forward slash autism also coming up this week I have an in-between episode with Damon Freeman from Demonza and we're talking about the use of AI images in book covers something many of you are thinking about and I have now used twice on my short story with a with a demon's eye and also on catacomb both are composite ai image covers that my human designer jane used to create the final cover so we talk all about that and in fact the images on my uh writing the shadow are also ai generated that go into a composite so we'll be talking all about that so next week i'm talking about producing audio drama with Joanne Phillips, something that also I'm really interested in. And if you're into audio or you want to write for a different market, or if you're considering turning your book or screenplay into an audio drama, which is definitely cheaper to make than a movie, but still a lot of effort, uh, a really interesting discussion. So in the meantime, happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.